Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a study of the Gospel according to Mark. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Heavenly Father, this morning as we break open the word of life, we pray that you will be with us, that you will inhabit this hour, and that you will quicken our minds, quicken our hearts, so that we can pay attention to your word. Help us to understand the deep things, the gracious things, the blessed things that you have passed on to us about your son. We are ever grateful that you decided to send your son to this planet to redeem a people for your own glory and for his eternal praise. And we are just so very grateful that you did not leave us to ourselves. So be with us. We pray that the king will walk these aisles this morning. And we pray that people do not hear from me today, but that they hear from you today. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 3. We will get there eventually. Last week... At the end of the lesson, we heard Jesus say, verse 28 of chapter 2, he said, Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I attempted to give you some sense of how that had to have affected the Jews who were listening to him. I don't think I did an adequate job. So I'm going to take another shot at it this morning to give you some sense of where the Jewish mindset was, especially where the Pharisaical mindset was concerning the Sabbath. Because the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath. And you're going to see this repeatedly, that Jesus keeps doing things on the Sabbath. That's not a mistake. He's doing that on purpose because he is challenging the religious dogma and the religious traditions that the Jews have felt were justifying them simply in the doing. They believe that by constantly doing these religious practices, they were being justified before God. He is saying You can't be justified by any other means than me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. One of the ways that he is making that point is by showing himself to truly be Lord of the Sabbath. I'm going to read some verses this morning. There are verses from the Old Testament that I think elucidate how important the Sabbath was to the Jewish religion and to the Jewish mindset. For instance, right away in Exodus, Exodus 16, 29, we read, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. 
Remain, each of you, in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. The seventh day was the Sabbath. And that's actually a little bit of a play on words because the Hebrew word Shabbat, Shabuah, means seventh. It just means the seventh day. That also, by the way, means that the concept of Sunday being the Christian Sabbath doesn't exist. That's not in the Bible anywhere. In fact, it doesn't even make any logical sense to say that the first day of the week is now the seventh day of the week. That makes no sense at all. The Sabbath, the seventh day from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday, you couldn't eat, you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't stir up any fires, you couldn't pick up any sticks, you couldn't leave your home, you couldn't do any of those because that was the Sabbath. It was a day of rest dedicated to the worship of God and dedicated to resting from all your labors. What you're going to see in a moment is that God is very specific about who he made this covenant with. He made the covenant of the Sabbath with Israel. Get that straight. Get that right. If you're a Gentile today, you are not under the Sabbath command. You're not under the Sabbath covenant. The Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic covenant that was cut at Sinai between God and Israel. There is no similar command to the church that the church keep Sabbath. Therefore, it's unnecessary for the church to say Sunday is now the new Sabbath. Because as soon as you say that, you're saying that the Sabbath rule still applies to the church in some significant way. It doesn't. Right away in the book of Acts, you hear that the church started meeting on Sundays because that was the day that the Lord raised on the first day of the week. So there's a very big contrast between the Sabbath that was given to Israel and the first day of the week worship that the church engages in. And they're not to be mixed and matched. They're not to be a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's very distinct. It's very different. But to the Jewish mindset, there is no other important day. There is no more important day than the Sabbath. Sabbath is what it's all about. That's the sign of the covenant. That's what makes us unique. Exodus 20, starting at verse 8 and reading till verse 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's a command. That's the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Is there a similar command anywhere in the New Testament that is made to the Gentiles especially? But is there any such commandment to the church where the church is commanded, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Does that exist? No, it doesn't exist anywhere in the New Testament. When Paul is writing to the church, when Paul is writing to specifically Gentiles who don't have a background in the Old Testament, who don't have a background in the Jewish religion, who don't know anything about the Sabbath, if they were supposed to keep Sabbath, it would be incumbent on Paul to say something about it. But Paul doesn't say anything about it. In fact, nine of the Ten Commandments, as I mentioned last week, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated somewhere in the New Testament. You know which one isn't? Sabbath. Sabbath. It's just not 
in there. And yet listen to how important it is. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That means like nobody. In fact, the Jewish rabbis took this command so seriously that even your livestock wasn't supposed to work on the Sabbath, that they had arguments about whether you could eat an egg that was laid by a hen on the Sabbath. And they came to the conclusion that you could as long as the chicken didn't work. That's how picky they got about the specificity of these Sabbath commandments, these Sabbath rules, where even your livestock and your servants and the sojourner within your gates, nobody can work. Because in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is within them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That just means made it separate. You by your resting on the Sabbath, not you personally. Jews, by their resting on the Sabbath day, made themselves separate people, separated to Yahweh, separated to God. That's what the sign of the Sabbath was all about. Exodus 23, 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. That means you can't plow any fields that day. And the son of your servant woman and the alien so that they may be refreshed. Okay, so no servants, no aliens, no animals. Nobody gets to do any work on the seventh day. Exodus 31, 13 and 14 says, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, you're supposed to speak to who? Who are you supposed to speak to? To the people of Israel. Notice that does not say speak to the church. Speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. That's how important the Sabbath was. Above all the other commands, among the 613 rules, the Ten Commandments, everything you find in the Old Testament, God says, above all of that, keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So the Sabbath is actually a sign, a mark, an insignia that says these are my unique, separated, distinct, holy people. And you can tell that's who they are by the fact that they keep Sabbath, which nobody else does. Every seventh day, they do no work. That is a sign between me and you, people of Israel, through all your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I separate you. I make you separate from all the peoples on the earth. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That's how important it is. If you profane the Sabbath, you'll be put to death. And whoever does any work on the Sabbath that soul shall be cut off from among the people. If you worked on the Sabbath, you'd be sent out of the camp of Israel. That's how important it is. Exodus 34, 21 says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, 
in plowing time, that's in the spring, and in the harvest, that's in the fall, you shall rest. Exodus 35, 2, six days, your work shall be done, but on the seventh day, you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Pay attention to that rule. Kindle no fire on the Sabbath day. That's a put to death rule. If you kindled a fire on the Sabbath day. So let's think about this concept for just a moment. That the, uh, that the church is now keeping a Sabbath on Sundays. Because all of these Sabbath rules would still apply then. Well, we all go to church on Sundays. How many of you uh, cooked anything this morning? Did you do it with heat? Did you do it with a fire? Did you do? How many of you drove a car to get here today? Okay, that's a combustion engine. Do you know what that means? Combustion? Fire. Fire. That's what that means. That means fire. You built a fire today. You're all guilty of breaking the Sabbath constantly just in order to get up, make some food, and get to church. But fortunately for all of us, the Sabbath rule doesn't apply to us. But listen to how intimate and how detailed God made the Sabbath rules for Israel. Leviticus 23.3, six days your work shall be done, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Now the book of Numbers, Numbers 15, starting at verse 32 says, while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. He's just gathering sticks. He's just picking up sticks. That shouldn't matter, right? And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done with him. And the Lord said to Moses, that man shall be put to death because he picked up sticks on the Sabbath. Did anyone pick anything up today? There it is. You're guilty. You've broken the Sabbath. That man is to be put to death because he picked up sticks. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Moving on to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5 starting at verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Wait, okay, so now we're getting a little more specific about the Sabbath rule. This applies, the Sabbath rule applies specifically to people who used to be slaves in Egypt. When was the church ever a slave in Egypt? We weren't. We weren't. You'd have to really spiritualize and allegorize that one. 
to get to the point where you say, well, yes, we were once slaves in Egypt. And then we were delivered by God, and we went through the Red Sea, and we ate manna. None of that is true to the church. It is true about Israel. So it's very specific that this is Israel's command. You will remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So those people whose heritage is that they were brought out of Egypt, those people have to keep the Sabbath. Ezekiel 20, starting at verse 12, we've done the Pentateuch now. I've given you some of the Sabbath commands out of the books of Moses, out of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Notice that they all include Sabbath rules across the board because that's so important to the covenant that was made with Moses. Ezekiel 20, starting at verse 12, moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them. Okay, so there's God very specifically saying the Sabbath belongs to Israel. That's who the Sabbath belongs to. I gave it as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who separates them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but they rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Moreover, I swore to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land that I had given them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands, because they rejected my rules, they did not walk in my statutes, and they profaned my Sabbaths. Isaiah 56 says, starting at verse 2, Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Isaiah 58, starting at verse 13, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day, and the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In other words, God says, if you really want to honor me, you're going to keep my Sabbath. Just a couple more. Nehemiah, after the rebuilding, we started talking about this on Wednesday nights as we're talking about the book of Esther right now. I said that's during the time of Nehemiah, during the time of Ezra and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. Part of what Nehemiah did was call the people back to the law, to the covenant of Moses. Nehemiah 9 verse 14 says, and You made known to them, to the people of Israel, you made them know your holy Sabbath, and you commanded them. You gave them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. Nehemiah 13, starting at verse 15, 
And in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. What does that mean? It means that Nehemiah saw people breaking the Sabbath. What were they doing? They're just treading a wine press. They're just making something to drink. And that was to break the Sabbath. That was to profane the Sabbath. They were bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. They were doing work on the Sabbath. And also wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem itself, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing? You are profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing even more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Finally, Jeremiah 17, 21 says, Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day and bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Don't do that. And do not carry a burden out of the houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. Okay, why did I read all of that? To give you some sense of the mindset of the Pharisees, of the Jewish people when it comes to Sabbath. Sabbath was the high and holy day when you could do no work whatsoever or else you were profaning the Sabbath. People died for that and Israel was cast out of their land into the Assyrian captivity, into the Babylonian captivity. That all happened because of the breaking of Sabbath. Jesus comes on the planet and he breaks the Sabbath. And can you see now what they're thinking? They're thinking, wait, wait, not only is he breaking the Sabbath, he's got his disciples breaking the Sabbath. He's got his apostles breaking the Sabbath. He's encouraging people to break the Sabbath. And so this is a very, very big point of contention between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And then Jesus, as we saw last week, ends up saying, I am the Lord. Kurios is the word. I am the master over the Sabbath. He can only say that if he's God. If he's God, then he established the Sabbath. If he's God, then he knows full well the rules that were laid out in the Old Testament and given specifically to Israel. And because he was the rule giver, and because he is the law giver that Moses spoke of, when Moses himself said that there was going to be another law giver and the gathering of the people would be to him, which is why it's so important that when Jesus was baptized, that the voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then 
Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's got Peter, John, and James there with him, and Moses and Elijah show up with him. The very embodiment of the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Peter tries to equate them, says it's a good thing we're here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for each of you. Completely a mistake. A voice comes from heaven, says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And Moses and Elijah are gone. They disappear. And there's no one standing there but Jesus. Hear him. Okay, that only matters. That only counts if he is God. If he is the very son of God. If he is God incarnate. Then he is indeed the better, higher lawgiver who has the absolute right to say things like, it used to be like this. You've heard it said. It used to be said by Moses. This is what was written in the law. But I say, hear him. Hear him when he says it. So he says, I am Lord over the Sabbath. And that means the very thing that made you individuals, that made you not like the other nation, that made you a holy people, a separate people, a sanctified people, the very thing that separates you from all the other people on planet Earth, that very thing, I'm even Lord of that. You get it? Do you get where he's placing himself? He's placing himself at the very center of the religious universe. That's why he can say things like, what you think of me? Who do men say that I am? And when Peter says, you're the Christ, he says, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood didn't teach you that. Flesh and blood can't reveal that. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. He places himself continually at the very center of the religious universe and says, what you think of me determines your eternity. So much so that even the religious practices like the Sabbath that were so vitally important to Israel, even that was subservient to him. You get the picture? Yes, sir. And then, just to prove it, he walks around doing things on the Sabbath. Okay, he's got six other days. He could have done stuff on a Monday. He could have healed this guy we're about to read about. He could have done that on a Wednesday. He didn't have to do it in the temple where everybody's watching. But he did it because he was demonstrating himself to be everything I just said he is. The son of God, the center of the religious universe, in charge of everything, including the Sabbath. And that to the Jews was blasphemous. That to the Jews was how can you, a Jew, encourage people to break Sabbath? So, chapter 3, verse 1, we finally got there. I told you we'd get there. And we finally got there. But uh, I've been speaking for about a half hour now, which means I've still got four hours to go. So, settle in. I hope you brought a lunch. Chapter 3, verse 1. Everybody there now? And he entered again into a synagogue. The he there is Jesus. He has just said, consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. Let me see if I can contextualize this for just, just to get you in the right mindset again. There was a time when Jesus encountered a man that was born blind. His apostles asked him, why was this man born blind? Who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Because they kept thinking that there had to be some sin involved for this man to be born blind. And Jesus answered and said, neither. It's neither of them. It's not his parents. It's not him. I don't know how he in the womb could have sinned bad enough that God would have gone, well, that's it. You're blind from now on. I don't know what he could have done. But they wanted some explanation. They wanted some reason. They wanted some rationale for why he was blind. It had to be something he did or something his parents did. This couldn't just arbitrarily have happened. It has to have a reason. They want to know the reason. Jesus says, neither. It's so that I can do the mighty works of God. That's the reason. That's the rationale. So that means that that man lived for 30 years as a blind man just so that there'd be somebody for Jesus to heal so Jesus could demonstrate that he was the son of God. You understand that? Okay, Jesus enters the synagogue. There just happened to be a man with a withered hand. What were the chances? He was there. The man in the synagogue with the withered hand was there because Jesus had to heal him on the Sabbath. There's no mistakes here. There's no accidents here. He is the sovereign one, and that's why this man lived his life with a withered hand. And you would look at him and think, that's just cruel of God. This man lived with a withered hand, but he had the withered hand so that he could glorify God. In other words, whatever you're going through today, whatever problem you've got in your body today, God was either going to heal that to his glory or he's going to teach you some lesson in patience and faith as a result of it. But guaranteed, it has a purpose. There's always purpose to what God does in the lives of his people. So there just happens to be a man with a withered hand. Verse 2. Now we're finally to verse 2. You can see why this is going to take four and a half hours. I'm still kidding. It's all right. It's all right. And they were watching him. Who's they? The Pharisees. The religious leaders were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. It's very important to them. This is the Sabbath day and you're in the tabernacle. Are you going to break the Sabbath? Because if you heal him, that's work. And I think we've stressed this morning that you can't work on the Sabbath. So what is he going to do? They're watching to see if he's going to heal that man on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. Why? Because they believe in keeping Sabbath. That is the covenant sign. That is what separates us from all other people. And if you heal somebody on the Sabbath, if you do work on the Sabbath, that's tantamount to picking up sticks. You should be stoned for that. Working, so uh, hello. <laughs> yeah, there is hypocrisy to it, isn't it? Yes. yes. By the way, I like the fact that you summarized their massive hypocrisy by just going, hello. <laughs> so, 
And he said to the man with the withered hand, rise, come forward. Okay, so far he hasn't healed him. So far he just said, come here, come over to me. You know they had to be dialing in right now. Now the Pharisees are like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Jesus speaks theologically to them in verse 4, and he says, is it lawful, in other words, does this comport with Moses and the law, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. He wrapped them up in their own theology. He asked them, is it okay to do good and heal and save a life on the Sabbath? Is that okay? They hadn't thought about that. They were so busy thinking, we're just going to catch him. We're going to catch him working somehow. And he says, is it okay to save a life on the Sabbath? They don't know what to say. And after looking around at them with Anger. Notice that. Jesus is getting upset over the fact that they have created all these religious rules and standards that have bound men up, which is why back in chapter 2 at verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They had turned it all around. The Sabbath, as I said last week and kept trying to stress, the Sabbath is good for people. It was good for Israel to take a day of just resting. The animals rest, the servants rest, the strangers and the foreigners rest. Just a day of rest to make you a separate people who belong to God. That's good for you. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders had turned it into a requirement where they couldn't wait to condemn people over the Sabbath. So as soon as they saw the apostles of Jesus picking corn on the Sabbath because they were hungry, immediately they accused him. That's what they had turned religion into. They had taken a perfectly good religious concept, which was Sabbath rest, and had turned it into an evil concept of accusing people, making other people guilty. They couldn't wait to stone other people. Jesus has to correct their thinking and say, no, the Sabbath was made for men, Men were not made for the Sabbath. So now he's asked them, is it okay to do good and save a life? And they kept silent. So he looked on them with anger and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Is it worth pointing out that legalistic religion makes people's hearts hard? Isn't it fun being around legalists? Don't you enjoy that? Isn't that fun? No, thanks. Isn't that a lot of fun? Okay, i got to tell you a quick story. And I'm not even sure if this will make it to the Internet, but i gotta, I got to tell you. I uh, contend that you cannot write anything of a religious nature on social media without somebody else coming up right behind you to say how wrong you are. It's just universally true. But yesterday, I posted a picture of my lovely wife. Just a picture of my wife. And I said, quote, I'm not bragging, 
but my wife is pretty darn cute. Okay, that's all I said. That's all I said. Well, fortunately, the vast majority of comments said, yes, you are bragging, and yes, she is cute. And so, okay, fine, great, playing with it. Oh, I, I enjoy that. Somebody took the time to write. Somebody who I had just recently friended. I don't know this fellow. I'm not naming names or picking him out. He took the time to write that children of God would never use the word darned. <laughs> he actually wrote D dash 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 so that he himself didn't use that word. And, and it was Jeff. And so, I mean, it was, I, I was really kind of stunned and taken aback. Think through it logically. <laughs> What'd you say? Yes, yes, most of us are. Yeah. But I thought, there you went. You found something to criticize. You found something to pounce on so that you could say, you're wrong. Mm. Well, that was the pharisaical attitude. That's the legalistic attitude. That you read the Bible just to find rules so that you can accuse other people. Say, you're not living up to the standard. Now, may I point out that I get that the word darn is a euphemism for the word damn, which the Bible actually says. <laughs> so if this fellow was going to be consistent, he would say that children of God and the Bible can't use that word. I, I'm just trying to be consistent here. Did you have your hand up, Eileen? Or were you just drying your nail polish? <laughs> Interesting question. I think it is a bit of both. I th I'm going to repeat your question so the folks on the internet can hear it. Your question was, is it about power or is it about pride? I think it's the combination of both. It starts with the pride of I'm better than you. Because if I can point out your error, your mistake, then I must be better than you because I don't make that particular mistake. But then I think it's about power because then it becomes a matter of lording it over other people. So that you're saying, I'm the standard and you don't live up to my standard. So I do think it's about power. I have been in lots and lots of legalistic churches through the years. And they use that legalistic power to control people. Everybody in here is nodding. And so, yes, it's about power. There is no greater demonstration of that than convincing people that they need to come confess their sins to a priest. And then the priest knows all your hidden secrets and all the things you're ashamed of, and then they can utilize that to get you to give money to the church or show up regularly at Mass because I know your secrets now. So, yeah, it's about power, but it's also about pride and arrogance in thinking that I'm somehow better than you. Do you think that maybe there's a hidden envy? The hidden envy? Uh, 
I don't know, not being a psychologist, I, I don't know that I could say that it's about envy. I think legalism is based on feeling misery loves company. I have such a yoke, such a burden on me that I need to drag you down with me. I need to drag everybody I can down with me so that we can all be miserable together. Uh, there is no such legalism in Christ. That's, that's really the point of all this. In the church and in Christ, there is no such legalism. There is freedom. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Thank God I am free, free, free from this world of sin. You know, that has always been the Christian exaltation, is that we are free in Christ, free from the law, oh happy condition, that no longer is this bondage on us. And Paul refers to the law as bondage. And so we've been freed from that bondage. So for Christians to try to bring other Christians under bondage, there has to be some motivation outside the Bible. Because it's not coming from the Bible it has to be coming from human pride and the desire to lord power over other people. And it appeared that this became their job. Say that again? It appeared to me in reading all this that it became their job to just look out for... Right. Jesus. You're talking about the Pharisees? Yeah. Yeah, it's their job to just look out for people doing something wrong so they can condemn them. And so they're doing the very same thing with Jesus. And my point was, isn't that how legalists always act? They're, they're not happy that you're free in Jesus. They can't wait to condemn you about something. So that's what's happening to Jesus here. Okay, we're in verse 5. Looking around at them with anger. Oh, let me point out one more time, now that we've talked about this kind of legalism a bit. Notice that it inspires the ire of Jesus. Mm. Notice that Jesus is not happy that they're laying all this bondage on people. He looks around at them with anger and he is grieved at their hardness of heart that they can't wait to condemn other people. And it's the same today. There's still people today under the guise of Christianity walking around condemning people, putting other people down, showing their hardness of heart. And according to this verse, that is not pleasing to Christ. So looking around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, that's his motivation, notice. His motivation at that moment is that he's grieved at their hardness of heart and he's angry at them. So therefore, watch this, guys. <laughs> Stretch out your hand, he said to the man. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against Christ as to how they might destroy him. That's not a mistake that Mark put that sentence right there. What's the rationale? What's the reasoning? Why are the Pharisees and the Herodians wanting to destroy Jesus? Because he keeps breaking the Sabbath. That's how important the Sabbath rule was. And he keeps breaking it in front of them and declaring himself to be Lord even of the Sabbath. He's making himself out to be God. 
and they don't like that. That is the highest form of blasphemy as far as they are concerned, and in fact, that is one of the charges that they are going to bring against him to nail him to the cross, that he's blaspheming in that he makes himself to be the Son of God. And yet, everything he does and everything that's said about him from heaven declares him to be the Son of God. So why don't they just believe him? Why don't they just say, well, he's clearly the Son of God. We should get in line with this. Because God made sure that their hearts were hardened so that they would kill him. Because as I said last week, he has a date with a cross. And there have to be people who hate him enough to want to kill him. Here they are right here. The Pharisees went out immediately and began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Do you think he knew that would be the result? Yes. Yeah. So why would he do it? Why would he go in a tabernacle of all places on the Sabbath of all days? And then confront them, confound them, wrap them up in their theology, and then in anger at them, heal a man. Why would he do all that? So that the reaction would come about that they and the Herodians would want to destroy him. He's completely in charge. That's why he said things like, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay down my life. Think about that for a moment. If the wages of sin is death and he's sinless, can he die? What would he be dying for? So he says, it takes power for my life to be laid down. And I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. I'm completely in charge of death and hell and the grave. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I'm completely in charge and I have the power to lay my life down. Nobody takes my life from me. And then he said, I have this command from my father. The command of the father was for him to come to earth to lay his life down and to take his life back up again. And he has the power to do all that. And he's going to make sure that there are men who hate him enough to think that they are actually killing him because he has a date with a cross. And he has to go do that because the command of the Father is that's how you redeem our people. You get it? See, there's this great big sovereign plan of God at work. And it's being demonstrated here in the Gospels that Jesus is in complete control. Look, he walked up to fishermen and tax collectors and said follow me and they left their jobs and followed him you don't think when he walked in the tabernacle and was dealing with the Pharisees you don't think he could look at them and say follow me and they would follow they wouldn't have any choice did you have any choice you didn't have any choice you follow because he got a hold of you and you belong to him and that's why you follow him. And he could have just as easily said to the Pharisees, follow me. He didn't say it. Why? Because he didn't want them. He wanted the ones he said, follow me. To other people, he upset them, he angered them, he tweaked them till they wanted to destroy him and he knew it full well. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was choosing those who belonged to him and he was making sure that the ones who don't belong to him would hate him enough to kill him. 
complete sovereign control. Speaking of sovereignty, by, by the law, they could have stung him. But see, actually, they break the Sabbath. But the sovereignty wouldn't let that happen because of how he was supposed to have died. At one time, a mob grabbed him and took him to the edge of a cliff to throw him off the cliff. They were so angry. We don't have time to stone you. We're just going to throw you off a cliff till you plummet to your death. A crowd, a gang, takes him to the edge of the cliff. And then we read, and he turned around and walked through the middle of them. He's in charge. Not his time yet. Nobody takes my life from me. But even then, as you pointed out, he is demonstrating that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Yeah. He is Lord of the Sabbath, right. Think about the same situation with the adulterous woman. She deserved adultery. I mean, she deserved stuff. She deserved, absolutely. I'm the the lawgiver here. Yeah. It's the new covenant. That's why I keep saying over and over again that the new covenant is qualitatively new. It's not just a rubber stamp of Moses with some additional rules tacked on. It's a completely different, new, higher, better covenant based on higher, better laws and rules and a higher, better blood that established a higher, better salvation. If we don't keep those distinctions in place, we're going to end up saying to the church that they are somehow still under some of the laws and rules that belong to Israel exclusively. And that's confusion. So I have been trying for years to make a really clear distinction and differentiation between the old and the new covenant. This is the hand motion for the old and the new covenant. Do it with me. Old and new covenant. Never mind. We found out who the obedient ones were because a few people did it. Okay? That's all I'm saying. That's all. The Pharisees went out immediately, there again is Mark's use of that word immediately, and they began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And Jesus withdrew to the sea, probably the Sea of Galilee, with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Edomia. And from beyond the Jordan, and from the vicinity, this is north of Israel, the area of Tyre and Sidon, there was a great multitude that heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. Look again, Mark saying, great multitudes, huge groups of people. It wasn't just him and 12 guys. And In fact, he's only got four apostles at this point. He hasn't chosen the other eight yet. But huge crowds are following him because they hear what he's doing. He's healing people. He healed a lame man that came down through the roof who picked up his bed and is walking around now. He healed a man with a withered hand. He healed a man who had a disease that is incurable. He had leprosy. He was left out of the camp. He healed him. You don't think huge crowds are going to go to him? Look. Benny Hinn never healed anyone of anything ever. People flocked to him. Why? In the hope that they might get healed. 
You don't think they'd go to Jesus when he's actually healing people? So, huge groups followed him. Verse 9, and he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude. There's so many people crowding in on him. First, he recognizes that in order to speak to all of them, they should stand on the shore and he should go out a little ways in a boat. And then he can speak to the whole mass. But he also wants the boat there because they're pressing so hard on him, he might need to get away. So because of the press, he told the disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude in order that they might not crowd him, for he had healed many. With the result that all those who had afflictions pressed about him in order to touch him. Okay, we've got a multitude. Have you ever seen a mob scene? Remember when the Beatles came to America the first time? Remember Beatlemania? Too many of you are shaking your heads no. I remember. It was insane. Everywhere they went, there were just masses and crowds of people trying to touch them or grab a lock of their hair or tear their clothes off. I'm just bringing all that up to say that's what a mob scene looks like, and it was nothing compared to what Jesus went through. There are sick people. There are people desperate to be healed, and they all want to touch him. And when you get hundreds and thousands of people and they want to get to someone, something, when they want to rush the stage, there, did anybody get that one? Yeah. If they, when they want to get to where the thing is, sometimes it becomes dangerous, not only to the person they're trying to touch, but to each other. People are going to get hurt in that kind of mob. So Jesus said, have a boat standing by because they might become so many trying to get to me that I just need to get out from them. Verse 11. And whenever, this is so interesting, and whenever the unclean spirits beheld him, they would fall down before him and cry out saying, you are the son of God. That's a good testimony, by the way. When the demons... Say, I know who you are. You're the very son of God. Notice the contrast. I think Mark did it on purpose. Human beings almost crush him for what they can get out of it. Me, heal me, give me the crush, the press of the people. Me, me. Demons see him worship. Demons see him fall down in front of him. Demons see him and say, you are the son of God. Okay, so the Pharisees and the Herodians were seeking how they could destroy him. Demons, worship. Demons, you are the very son of God. Because they had the insight to know his majesty, his authority, his sovereignty. They recognized that when they reach their ultimate end, he's the one that's going to be judging them. Human beings, give me stuff. Give me more. What can you do for me? All these masses and gangs and crowds of people and all the people he heals, when he goes to the cross, where are they? They're gone. Because he's done giving them stuff. 
he's now, you know, the Romans have got a hold of him. There's a guard on him. He's going to get killed. We don't need anything else from him. I got what I can get out of him. He's gone now. But the demons know enough to recognize who he is and to shudder over it. And verse 12 says, And he earnestly warned the demons that they would not make him known. Because as Jeff said a minute ago, it's not his time yet. But as soon as he makes himself known, as soon as he says it's my time and goes back to Jerusalem so that the Jewish leaders can work their plan, as soon as his time is up, he's got that date with the cross. And that's exactly where he ends up. He's in complete control of everything that happens, including human beings pressing in on him until until he says, get a boat ready. I may have to get away from this mess. They seem unruly, uncontrolled. They're a mob. They're out of control. Demons, he says, don't tell them who I am. And they don't. The demons actually obey him. And I think their obedience is based on the fact that they know who he really is. Human beings who don't obey him, it's based on the fact that they don't know who he is. If they knew, they'd be on their face. Instead, they're standing up saying, give me, me. And that still works. That works to this very day. The name it, claim it, churches are packed. Me, give me stuff. That still works. That appeals to people. That appeals to the flesh. But if they knew who Jesus really was, if they understood his authority, if they understood his sovereignty, they would get down in the dust in front of him. Demons do it. Human beings, too much ego, too much hubris, too busy thinking we're really something. He's everything. You're nothing. Right? Okay. That's where we'll pick up next week. Any more questions about that? Good. I appreciate the comments and the questions. Those were good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.